This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Studio Secrets A to Z. I'm your host, Anthony J. Resta, and we are with the esteemed audio guru himself, Phil Green. You are a source of wisdom that I think is very important to share with the world, and I'm so pleased to have you here today, Phil. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Anthony. We'll jump right into where we were talking about, uh, you know, compressors and uh, the, the old Poltex that the that uh, Bill Putnam, no, that was a 610 that Bill Putnam designed, but... Um, yeah, well, that, that... He he used to make those for himself, and then he give us either one he made for the original muscle shoals. It said designed for uh, Rick Hall. No, like, yeah, it says he used to customize them for the people he made them for. You know, Bill Putnam's biggest thing he brought to the table in recording. What before before Bill Putnam, if you wanted something wetter, you had to record record it in a wetter environment and take the mic further away until you had the right balance between reverb yep. and uh, right signal. Bill Putnam decided, why don't I put another knob on every input and put the speaker in the bathroom and an RCA ribbon on the other end, and then I'll just throw a little in the speaker and return it on an input. The, the echoes send in return. He yeah. invented reverb being mixed in as we know it. Well, that's incredible. He did that at Universal Studios in Chicago. I think he did it before in, before 1950, in fact. I think they still might have been cutting the disc, and I'm not even sure they had tape recorders yet. And a lot of those recordings, they've one or two mics, and people just play. Everything goes right direct to the disc, right? Gun Cross is the reason we had tape recorders, okay? Now, he didn't invent them. The Germans invented this thing called a magnetophone, but it wasn't really very professional. It wasn't really standardized, and it wasn't really built, built for professional work. But he, used to, he had this very popular show in the late 40s, so he'd always be fighting between New York, 
Central Mountain in L.A. when you broadcast, because it would be too early for some people, it would be too late for other people, and everybody would always come write it. So he gets a copy of this magnetophone. He goes, this is a great idea. So he starts going down the yellow pages, and the first engineer, audio engineering company he could find was Ampex. He brought this thing over. Okay, could you make a professional, you know, you know, version of this that'll hang up on the professional use that can be calibrated regularly by normal people, you know, what we know now is a professional tape recorder. Yep. If it's not it was model and then went to stereo and you know how it worked, you know. That's but, uh, but but he, the biggest thing Bill Putnam brought was the echo send and return. That's amazing. I, I, I met Les Fallen one night. This is, uh, I was going from a 16 track to 24 and he called my studio and he was interested because I, I was selling the 16 track console rather cheaply because it wasn't a great console. Was, we were getting it nice when we went 24. This is back in my. I don't know, 77 maybe. Yep. And um, so I get talking to the guys. I realize after about two or three minutes talking to this guy, I realize this is not a normal old guy. This guy really knows what the hell is going on, right? But we get talking. I says, uh, where are you at? He says, Jersey. He said, they name a guitar after you? <laughs> <laughs> he said, you caught me. We had, we, had, we had an interesting conversation for a couple hours on his time. Yeah, he brought everything to this business, like overdubbing. Oh, my God, yeah. Crazy. Well, he was doing sound on sound even before he did overdubbing. What he'd do was he'd, he'd put something over the erase head so he records something, like on mono. Yeah. And he'd cover the erase head. And then he'd record on top of the already recorded. But, like, if you screw up anything and include a balance or make a mistake, you got to stop from the beginning again because it's all gone. Right. It's not, like, it's not like you can just punch in and out on a track. That's crazy. Wow, Phil. So I want to go back to your beginnings. As a kid, you know, I, did you always play guitar as a kid? Like when do, or, Tell me about how you got into recording. How did well, you? I was nine years old and starting to notice girls. I was almost 10. I, I grew up in Narragansett, Rhode Island. About a friend of my parents came by and was, you know, he bought like an Austin Healy Sprite in England because they, they let him take him over on the Destroyers during peacetime, you know? Yeah. He, he's, he's sitting up on the back of the Sprite playing this guitar and his friend's driving it, right? And he's sitting up on the, he's got his feet in the bucket seats. He's sitting up in the back. I noticed all these girls came from everywhere. So I said, I got to get me a lot of those. I had no interest. <laughs> I, I had no idea I'd be, ever be a musician or be in a music business or anything. But he brings me this old, he says, I got this old one I learned. I was just cheap, restboard, like Stella, whatever, you know, junk guitar. You know what I mean? But it was my first guitar. And then he says, I'm going out on the ship. I'm going to be back in 45 days. You better know how to play something like that. And I can learn how to play it too. Wow. And that was the beginning of me being in a music business, I guess. 10 years old. That's crazy. I learned how to play. I found it was very easy for me to learn how to play. You just had an ear. Did you play along to the radio or what? Did, how did you learn like records? What did, what, what did you play along to? First thing I learned was Mel because I heard Mel Carlos Montoya play it on TV. And next day I was playing it. My mother said, how did you learn how to play that? Because the guy tuned it before he left, right? Show me how to tune it. Yeah. So I saw the guy playing it on TV. She says, you're playing that song because you saw a guy play it on TV? So she says, it was the middle of the summer, right? Well, yeah. so it was the end of the summer. She says, you're taking lessons. I don't want to take lessons. I don't want to go to school in the summer. She said, I'm not asking. So it's so 3 o'clock every Saturday. I had to go to the guitar teacher. He taught me how to read, you know. Yeah. And then 
when I, you know, when you get better than them, you go to the next guitar teacher. And when you get better than them, you get to the you get to the next guitar teacher. One never got better than I started gigging, and I just didn't know how to. You know, he was teaching me how to read and all these fancy chords, and I get playing in rock and roll bands and R and B bands. And I never used any of that stuff, so you kind of lose it. Yeah. Wow. So you said some jazz chords and all that stuff. Oh yeah, I was all all, all the bossa novas. You know, bossa novas are ridiculous. Lots of chords. Yeah, that's great. So then, yeah. where did that? See how many notes are in the one note samba? It's funny they should call it that because it's, <laughs> it's, it's some of those some of those licenses are impossible. But um, you know, when I was like thirteen or fourteen, my last teacher. Yep. But then I was gigging like in a I was in a country band first. I was a rhythm guitar player, and I used to go up and play the guy scratch because I had a flat top with a pickup on it. And then uh, and then he he was going somewhere. Oh, he's just going to North Carolina. So I was already sitting in on his guitar and playing like the rock and roll stuff. So the drummer who was a leader, these guys were all like in their forties. So I'm like fourteen, and um, he told my father he's got to get a real lead guitar because he's going to be the next lead guitar player, or we're going to have to hire one. My father bought me this old used Stratocaster. I bet you still have 1954, it. 1954, 165 bucks. Wow, thirty-five thousand dollar guitar now or more. Yeah, that's that that, that guitar's worth some money. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I sold, it, I sold it to George Moore in Nashville. I did a lot of work with him. I sold him a 58 Explorer once for a lot of money. That's so why I built my first studio. You were cutting. You were cutting. You, you were cutting out a bit there. So who was who is who are we talking about in Nashville now? Judge Gruen. Oh, okay. He cool. probably he probably invented the vintage guitar shop. I believe. I think he's kind of like the original guy in the business. I think all you know norms and all those places. Yep. I do believe they are because of George's place. Wow. He had the first, like, finished guitar shop I ever been at. And back then, like, you know. 74. Yeah, a lot of those, at that time, even the, the best guitars, best vintage guitars weren't all that expensive because nobody realized that they were, you know, they were going to end up being, you know, priceless, you know. It's crazy. I, I was between gigs, you know. I swallowed broken up and I hadn't got my next band yet. So me and my girlfriend are there living on, like, almost nothing, like, starving musicians do yep and you know my big splurge is every every month i get a guitar player magazine yep and there's an article by george saying if you ever see one of these guitars and the most valuable electrics in the world i walk into what the next day i walk into a locksmith shop so we can have two keys so we can go and come separately from our apartment and uh there's one sitting out of the case in the corner it'd been there for like ever like about this much dust on it. I wiped off a little dust that's perfectly preserved by the dust. It was like brand new. Wow. No pitting on the gold, nothing. You know, you know what a Gibson Explorer looks like, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, this is the original 58. I don't think they, I think they made like 17 and 58 and like 11 more and 59 out of parts they made in 58. Wow. That's They're cool. like the rarest electric on wrist. Right. I, last time I saw the guitar, it went off the auction for 1.6 million in 2015. That's insane. Well, that's how I got. That's how I, I always wanted a studio. That's kind of how how I was able to afford one. So, so that's how you bought Normandy. No, that's how I got the studio before Normandy. Okay, well, that's I had I had I had my own little studio in Providence. It was, it was just a modest little eight track. It was mine. Yeah, and I sold it to a guy, and I was building a studio with some friends of mine, the bass player from Swallow, and a few other guys in North Jersey, right over the bridge, GW, so we could get some overflow and have low overhead, you know. But that that kept get took forever to get built, and like besides one of the partners that had more money, you know how studios always go up budget. But this is a twenty four track, and so one of the partners ended up being well. Let's put it this way: everybody did what he said because he had the money. 
Right. And so in the meantime, I wasn't working and I didn't want to join a, join another band and piss off another band because I quit because I had a bad reputation for joining bands and quitting anyway. <laughs> I get bored and join another band. Yeah. So I, I, I didn't want to do that, you know, alienate any more of the musicians. So Bob Schumann, who founded Normandy Sound in 1975, I remember he just built this great big place. I said, you're going to put an eight-track in here? I said, this is like a great big studio. You could have a real studio in here. You know, Normandy's a good-sized place, right? Yeah. And um, he says, well, I got it cheap. It was $250 for the whole thing. I mean, a whole block. Plus a, a, apartment on second floor and apartment on the third, all for 250 a month. It was 1975. Wow. And um, it, yeah, it definitely isn't that now. And little by little, so he kept coming, where can I get some business? So I, guess, so I said, I got some friends that want to make a demo. So I put uh, John Caffrey and the Beaver Brown band down there. Yep. That's the first band I ever brought in there. No kidding. And uh, so they kind of became a house project. And they set, so him and my other partner started managing them. And uh, you know what happened to that. Well, you guys had a hit. Uh, that, that album sold 3.9 million copies, that wow. first album. So the, that was your first, you know, recorded and mixed at Normandy record? I was uh, the first one that did that big. Oh, that's I huge! Think I worked. On, I, I think I worked on a few, a few singles with Maurice Starr that did pretty good before that. So with Maurice Starr, for Ariston, and for Arthur Baker, and uh, sure Arthur Baker, yep. Yeah, he had a, he had a company called Streetwise. Uh, they had a new edition. They had a bunch of his stuff. Uh, and then we worked for Clive Davis a lot for Ariston. That's such a cool uh, era. Did did you work on some of the new edition stuff? Yeah. Yeah. Um. And we had a hit for uh, Arista with Tom Brown, who was top 10, yep. I think. And we had another hit for Arista. What the hell was that? Else? I think it was Jeff Lauber right after. It was Jeff Lauber's first album right after Kenny G quit. No kidding. So which, Je- which, that- which kind of which, which sealed Jeff Lauber's fate because Kenny G was the uh, featured soloist. Once Kenny G got his own deal, that was kind of the end of Jeff Lauber. But we, we did put it on the charts. But like, he became like a, actually a well-known dance mixer in L.A. You worked at Larry, you know, the Larrabee on Santa Monica and Larrabee? Yep. He used to work out of there. You know that at SSL room? Sure. Because he was playing me some of this 80-8 stuff in, in the studio. I said, you're pretty good at this. I said, you should be a producer. Because I could see after Kenny G left it, like his, probably his musical career was probably pretty close to over. You know what I mean? Well, he had a good career as a jazz you know, fusion, jazz fusion. Like that was the era where bands like Vital Information, which I know you worked with, with Steve Smith and some that of That first album was brilliant. I, I, I just love that era. There was this fearless, you know, new jazz that was happening. Jean-Luc Ponty, um, you know, um, Steve Smith, you know, with Vital Information and Jeff Lorber. So you, you, it's funny, you were in the really mainstream pop stuff. You know, yeah, but those people was Tim Landers. He was a bass player that played with, Cobham, he played with Steve Smith, he played with Jimmy O, he played with a lot of people, okay? But his main gigs was Cobham, and he was a really good friend to Steve. Okay. He kind of put that band together for Steve, actually, that first light on information now, which I think is the best, personally. I love that one. Mike Stern on lead guitar, Dean Brown on rhythm guitar, who's also just about as good a player as Mike. I mean, let's be honest, they're both freaking monsters. Mike Stern was amazing. You worked with him early on. Yeah, I, well, that, that was just, that was right after he joined Miles. Okay. That's after you quit Cobham. I was in the dressing room at Brown. because Tim brought me to a Cobham show at Brown University so I could meet Cobham because he wanted him. Because I, I worked with Tim on some Latin albums. That's how I met him. You know, some, some guys in Venezuela before it was a communist country, and they had CBS had an office in Caracas, and they, they had money. And so, like, in the late 70s, early 80s, I was doing, like, a lot of Latin stuff with him. And he, he kept trying to get Billy down there. I said, this place sounds good, right? 
So I go to meet Billy, and Mike Stern comes up to Billy. I got to talk to you. And I said, "I want you want me to leave?" He said, "No, it's just like no big deal." And 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 then Mike goes, "I got to leave the tour." And Mike's the star of the tour. Mike Stern, he was unbelievable around 1980, right? Yeah. And uh, he said Miles called, and Billy goes, "I played with Miles, so just keep calling. He'll call for three years until you come. You don't have to worry about it." But Mike, Mike didn't want to take that chance. So they had to replace him immediately. And uh, luckily, Tim had stopped at the bar and heard some kid playing in a band called Home Cooking, you know, and it was Dean Brown. So he got his phone number. So he called it that night, and Dean became the guitar player in Cobbins' band. He was brilliant, okay? He replaced Stern like that, okay? But that Vital Information album is, you know, it's obviously Steve was in, Steve was in Journey and like was a superstar, so we could get a good solo deal, you know, because Journey was at the top of their career at the time. That's when they had a big album, you know, yep. with all the hits on it. Yeah. You know the one, Escape. Yeah, Don't Stop Believing, all that stuff. Yeah, all of those, uh, Open Arms, yep. uh, Who's Sorry Now, you know, that album, the big one, the big, big one. Yeah. So it's him, and then he, Tim was his friend, and then uh, Tim knew Mike, and Tim knew uh, two, knew uh, Gene, and they just kind of threw that together. So Tim goes, he says, says you, you book Friday night? We got a gig Saturday night. I said, no. He said, can we use the place to rehearse then? I said, well, I don't really like using normally as a rehearsal studio. It's a real studio, right? So I'll make a deal. You can rehearse it, but I can mic everything up. Just like we're doing a session. You guys play through can so you can really hear yourself, and I can record it all. Well, I bought a third of that album at rehearsal. <laughs> That's funny. Wow. <laughs> A lot of first takes. That that's what I was thinking. If, if they hear, if, he, if Steve heard back, really liked what he heard back, I might get the gig, and I did. I get the first two albums. You always made that room sound amazing. I mean, mm-hmm. that, yeah, just you, you just had a real gift um, early on for that. That now that was before you had an SSL too, wasn't it? Or was did you have the SSL by then? Oh. You know, boards, consoles are more of an issue when you're mixing. Okay. Any board is re- relatively clean. I mean, I, it obviously can't be terrible. It depends on what you're recording. You can record a guitar amp to about anything. You got like 80 cycles to about 4K coming out of a guitar amp. I mean, you know, yeah. how much? And it's all this, and you know, it's 30 or 40% distortion. So how, how good a mic reading you need for that, really? But like, you know, things like overheads and kicks and basses, we got bottom, grand pianos. You need pretty good electronic. But what you really need to start with is really, really good. You want great sound, you start with great mics. That happened to be that golden era of the late 70s when I could buy, I think I ended up paying under $4,000 for four original 47s. Wow. You know what that would cost now? No idea. Um, I've seen them go between 33 and 100 grand each. Wow. Uh, anyway, um, and uh, and I do the same thing with C12s and 251s. I smuggled an M49 in from Switzerland when I was in a studio next to Billy Cobbins house in Bern. Wow. I, I, I went into the country because I, I went there and we were coming back from another jazz. We were doing Montreal and we are coming back to do another one. So I met a, met a deal. I went to the studio. All I got is 49 Nymus, which you could, it was impossible to get here. Okay? But they're in, they're in, in Zurich has a deal with Germany. Like, they got no duties or anything. But stuff coming in the United States, the, the Swiss have the, they quadruple the price for the duties. Wow. Because they want you to buy their stuff. You know what I mean? They wanted the Swiss to buy Swiss stuff. So, except for Germans, because it's in Zurich, which is kind of, they all speak German. Might as well be in Germany. So I go in there and I says, uh, got a lot of 49s here. I says, yeah, we got, that's all we got. He said, I said, what would you really want? He said, 
Wait, well, 1176, but we're going to pay so much in duties. He says, Hey, next time I come back, I'll bring you 1176. You trade me one of those. And they traded me even. I bought it for 60, 165 bucks. Yes. Of the studio has gone out of business. That's amazing. I get about 70 mics in my mic locker there. Yeah. You know, like before I had all the fancy, before I even had automation. Yeah. I had like a, I had like a, Serious mic app. That's what made you excited and made you try new things, and those were the tools. You know, you know I got, I had an API in 1980 get hit by lightning, and everybody was on me so much to get API. I replaced it with a 636 MCI because it was automated because everybody wanted automation. It didn't, the audio quality between the API and the MCI, MCI is well-maintained. They're not bad sounding consoles, but um, they sound fine. The microphone's a much bigger difference for us. Yeah. And it had automation. It had my function, you know. And that's when we really started making hits is when we had automation. That's when Maurice started working with me because he wouldn't work without a, a console didn't have automation. You know what I mean? Sure. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com pantheon. Buyraycon.com pantheon. Sure. So Maurice, this will move us into the area of the new kids on the block, which sold how many records worldwide? I mean, I don't even know where to begin with that. But like, why don't you get give us the backstory on new kids on the block? I mixed all of Maurice's sets for about eighty one, I guess. I forget him, Steve Smith even got three fronts. I forget you worked on one one John Caffrey album with me. I, there was all people hanging around the studio, you know, to get to know each other. But Michael had just built a studio on Boylston Street with an SSL, so Michael kind of floated it for the time. So and he didn't have much of a budget because Matola really wasn't behind that band at all. He wanted to dump. And so the first album, Stiffs, I didn't make that because this guy Frank Keller used to be the chief engineer, a unique the guy that that basically trained the Lord Algae Brothers and stuff. They yeah. assisted under him. Okay, he was a good engineer, but he just didn't get what Maurice was trying to do. I mean, mixing a record is more than making it sound good. Mixing hit record, it's about focusing a listen listener where they're supposed to be, where, where the writer wants them or producer wants them to be focused. Like, I know a lot of engineers that get great EQ and things sound great, 
but they don't know how to focus the listener at the right place at the right time. That's a hit. So I learned that from Grace. You know what I mean? Yeah. We kind of worked together for a long time to the point where by the time I was doing a new kids, well, actually the first number one new kid mix, I'd already done a record that day. I'd worked all day for Warner Brothers Slash and some group. I forget what they were. Like an alternative. Maurice calls me up in the middle. He says, you got to mix this. I said, I just think I worked all night. Get some sleep. Wake up. Get some coffee. You got to mix this for me tonight. I mixed the first single on my old SSL, yep. 24 track. It got 17 tracks of music on it. You know, back in, back in the days when the guys didn't know how to produce, didn't, knew, knew that they didn't need like a zillion tracks to make it. And um, and then 18, including the Symphony to lock up the, the SSL. And I mixed it in three or four hours on that 40 input SSL, and dancing went number one. Wow. Which song was that one? Please don't go, girl. Oh, yeah, yeah. The first yeah. With yeah. Joey McIntyre, he was about he was about this big. He was about twelve or something, a little kid, right? He turned he turned into a man like the rest of us. He was like we called him Little Joe. And uh, I would think I I I had dinner. I had a couple hour nap, and then they they brought me in about three ice coffees and Dunkin' Donuts, which is kind of across the street. If you I remember. Okay, said so, and I just got up and I go, oh god, I got to make this song. And Maurice, this is really important to Maurice. By the way, I gave it to Tom Slezen. My race, I said, what do you think? Because I was, I was too busy with his Wonder Brothers album. I had Bob Mould producing, too, from Muscadoo. Oh, wow. And he was like, he was kind of a tough session, you know what I mean? He's brilliant. In some ways. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you don't know how to make a hit like Maurice Starr, but that's another thing. But not many people do. Um, so it, so I gave it to Tom. And, and so I said, what do you think? Maurice says, it sounds beautiful. It sounds beautiful. It sounds beautiful. It sounds wonderful. He says, but it don't sound like a hit. He says, he just doesn't know where to accentuate the right things at the right times. I want you to mix I said, you want me to take his mix and, 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 and like change? He said, no, I want you to stop fresh. Okay. 808, straight up, not samples. It's like an 808 recorded on that many tracks, you know, a real yep. 808, because they were cheap back then. Yeah. Like, eight, what, 87 maybe? And uh, a Rhodes and a couple of string synthesizers. And, him singing background vocals and uh, Joey singing lead. What Maurice used to do, he used to sing the lead because he could. He had such a range he could even sing up high like the kid. And then he'd sing, he'd sing like the guide vocal in one take, and then they'd sit there for like a week double tracking his vocal. I see. Then they'd sit there for a week double tracking his vocal again. And then he'd take his vocal away. Wow, that's crazy. So you basically have his performance with them aping it perfectly. What a formula! I mean, he, the empire that huh? the empire that uh, he built around that band it's just it's it's i remember just there was like Beatlemania. it was you know because I, I was in boston at the time and it was, that album that, that second one hang tough that i started with that number one single yep that album solo was 37 million copies wow i think at that time it was the biggest second biggest selling album in history i think thriller by michael jackson was the biggest one at 47 the one before that sold nothing. They were stiff. Matola, like I said, was trying to dump them. Um, but that ended up selling four or five million because it said new kids on the block on it. And the, the, the kids would send their parents and to go buy new kids on the block album. They, they, the, cover, the, the covers looked almost the same. They were the same colors. So they, 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 they probably sold four or five million in mistake purchases. Wow. <laughs> it was next to big one. And then that third one, step by step, I think did about seventeen, which, which is also, which is a major freaking record. That's like hysteria or something. 
You know, it's huge, huge. It's so, huge. so did that change your career a lot? I having... was disappointed after the one before. So once once you had those three massive albums under your belt, did you find yourself getting better management, better gigs? Like how what how how did that? Pay... I got better management for a while. I got the best manager there was. His name was Dan Crew. He managed Bob Clermont. Yep. Well, and that was great until Bob kind of told Dan, "I'm enough. I'm enough. I'm enough engineer for everybody. You don't need anybody else." So. You know who got dumped, and I had I was I kind of gone through the height of when I was really hot with him, so like it was harder to get, and it was, it was pretty difficult to get somebody at that level again. No, that's I mean you, that's as high as up as you can get, you know. Yeah, well, at the time I was lighting up the charts like every month with something. Yeah. You know what I mean? Just them alone, I think, was like twenty months straight of like we always had something on. Incredible, and, and like. With Michael Johnson, I did a, a few other things that were number ones, and we loved the charts too. I like the real production team was more me and Michael. Like Maurice was more the would, would would write the song and 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 do like a demo a, a demo with a vocal on it. Then Michael would kind of replay the stuff, and I'd write like orange charts and we do strings. Wow! And I like Richard Mendelson used to write the ch- string charts. I didn't know how to do strings. <laughs> wow. During that yeah, time. The third album, it was all 48 track and they had all the money. For the second album, they had no money. It was wow. done. Yeah. Maurice did it just all since and stuff. Wow. And the one they spent all the money on, after that 37 million seller, that, that third album had like basically no budget. When you sell 37 million records, your next record, your the budget is whatever it takes. Yeah. It's a, it's a blank, blank check. I'm not sure that's a good thing, actually. Yeah, because then things take forever, and like people second guess things, and yeah, you know, it, it gets gets more convoluted, you know. Well, that's the truth. Hey, the one he did on a shoestring in, a, in the house of his by himself, uh, old thirty-seven million copies. The one with the limitless budget. God knows how much they spent. Sold seventeen. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't a step. No, but after thirty-seven millions, I don't think anything they would have done at that point would have been a step, really. But the production values in the recording of that second, that, that third one is much better. Yeah. Obviously. I mean, it was, you know, it was unlimited budget. The bad thing was it was so big that, like, Sydney, the guy that was the engineer at the house of his, was chasing them around with a high 12-track recorder, uh, a 12-track 16-bit recorder, some kind of little, like, high digital recorder, and a, and a Yamaha PA board and, and some 414s and cutting them in whole cell suites after they played those thousand seat those ninety thousand seat arenas every night. And so they were already exhausted and they make them sing for another three or four hours. Crazy. They didn't want to take them off the road because they're making too much money. Wow. I mean it was just it was such a money making machine. The merch Maurice had half of the merchandise. That's crazy. You know they got yeah, fifteen points on their management. All the publishing. He became a mogul. Yeah. I the number I heard was about eight hundred million. Wow! Twenty months—that's getting paid. Yeah, a, it doesn't really get I, bigger than that. And it's never going again. Well, no. Matter of fact, it's never going to get nearly that big again. No. The, the big, the big record this year, Taylor Swift did one point six million records or something. Yeah, it's not. Those days are gone. You know. Uh, I'm amazed that she even sold those. Yeah. If it wasn't her, I mean, somebody else I think sold like a half a million or something. Everything's changed. Um, are there any techniques from uh, those three three new kids records that that you felt like contributed to their sonic the the sonic impact of those three albums? Like like you said, the third one is the most sonic impact. 
Um, what what were the kind of things that you were doing in the mix? I don't think it's as interesting as that. The second one was, you know what Maurice told me before I missed the second one? He said, listen, that control album by Jack and Janet Jackson. He wanted all that Jam and Lewis, uh, Minneapolis kind of thing happening, like, yeah, like yeah. Prince record. We put this on a kiddie band, like a White Jackson 5, which is kind of what the new kids were. Yeah. Okay. But like advanced, you know, you know, taken forward like a decade or whatever. Uh, and uh, he says, it'll be a totally new thing nobody's ever heard before. And he was right. He was. So I just, you know, I used to a lot use, I remember songs where I used nothing but an inverse reverb that would be the only reverb I'd use on the whole record. Wow. Because it would put it in a place that doesn't exist in nature. That's fascinating. Tell us more about, I want to hear all about that. So would that be an SPX 90 or something? Like where's the reverse reverb? Oh, well, the best is two of them. My favorite is Program Six on an on a Lexicon Two Hundred, exactly as it comes out of, of the box. If you if you mess with it at all, you ruin it. Wow! You hit Program Six on a, on, 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 on a model uh, two hundred. Um, if you want to eat you it a little back when it comes back through, you know, take a little of this, you know, maybe that, but don't play with anything else. You know what I mean? Yeah. And and the other one is pretty good is the Inverse Room on the um. The 224 XL, which is just a 12 bit version of the same thing, but I kind of found the more bits and the clarity of it actually, I don't know if there's more bits or not, but it was a clearer piece. Yeah. I'm not sure it was as effective as the 200, but it worked pretty good. The 200 was always uh, one of our favorites because we, we had one at Cortland and we used to use it a, a ton. It was just a great, great box. Uh, me and Bob Sonny John were talking about it today on the internet. You know, I stay in touch with Bob all the time. I love. I know you are. Yeah, we're. I know you are. Yeah, we're always in touch. He's he's great. He's like he's family. So you, he like claims I was I was I was the reason he started engineering. It, 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 that's true. That's, he told me that anyway. No, it's it's absolutely true. He's you were a huge was, inspiration to him. I was doing this metal band. Yeah. Okay, I was up in Worcester. You know, he's from Worcester, right? Yeah. And um, he was like a tech. He used to come and fix stuff. He's always been a tech. He's in there fixing something in the studio. I'm doing vocal overdubs on this metal band. This guy's like Dio. He's singing up like in the stratosphere, okay? I got him on an SM7 because you can't use condensers on guys that scream like that. You know what it sounds like. It's like a needle through the air, you know? Yeah. And I got the Songcraft board and I got an LA38. I borrowed from Jesse Hendon at Longview, which is right down the street. We're in Worcester, right? I love Jesse. Oh, yeah. I got always good. Well, the only two studios that were major studios in New England really got along because there's a lot of competition. Well, there's three. Mission Control and we get along because the 24 track stuff, most of it we mix in Mission Control because like he could get a better deal because it was his brother, Michael. And the 2048 track stuff always wound up at my place because I had a 56 input console and two 24 tracks, and Michael had a 32 input console and one 24 track. So that kind of it was what it was, you know? Yeah. Or if we did anything where I really had the low end, his big monitors weren't that good. So even on the 24th track, if I really, really had a bottom that was important, I just said, we're going down south. That meant Because he was in New Hampshire, right? Yep. West, right on the border with uh, off Route 3 going into Nashua. I remember. It was in, near Westford. Yeah, the old sanctuary. Yep. And he was there. And, and you know, the big monitors were worse. So it was NS10 NS City. You know what I mean? That was it. I could, I could deal with him. Made a lot of hits on him. But uh, like if we, I, I had to like hear, if I had to hear like 40 cycles, 35 cycles clearly off to Normandy because I had like big speakers at work. You had those big Altex, right? Well, I had, they actually ended up being big silver grains. They started as a, 
pair of Yuri's. That's what I meant. Bullets. That's what I meant. Yeah. So I had a pair of A13s, which kept blowing up. And then as I did the uh, live and dead in control room, which even is less base efficient. Uh, so I kept working on them with this guy named Al Firestein, who's a genius acoustician from Soho, and another guy named Dan Zellman. And, and all of a sudden, Gauss came out with these coaxial drivers that were exactly the same as 604, except the voice coils of the, the tweeter and the woofer were aligned, so they were actually time aligned. The original Altec 604 that was used in a, as a speaker in the 813, but they, they glued that horn on it. George Martin used on the Beatles. I mean, it's the same damn thing, right? Okay? That tweeter's like five, six inches, that voice coil's five or six inches behind the voice coil of the a woofer. And at the crossover point, you have a huge, they're supposed to be time aligned. That's bullshit. That's impossible. That Those things would have to be in the same plane pretty close at the crossover point. So when we discovered those, we just ripped everything out of those. We kept the cabinet. Okay. I put in Gauss, that Gauss, Gauss happened to come along with a subwoofer too, because they were aiming it right at that marketplace, because they knew that time alignment was bullshit. Okay. And uh, I used the Mac 2500 on the bottom for 215s, putting up. Putting an uh, inductor to roll everything out of the crossover, the top of the subwoofer above 200, because you don't want that get going down in the crossover point, because then you lose your timeline. You lose that point source. And I put about, I put about, well, after modification, probably 1600 watts on those. And I had a nice little quick MOSFET on the top. I think it was a Perel. It sounded amazing. Wow. And I used, I used to align them before every album. Tom Slows got me into doing that. He was really fuzzy. Did you run the ta- uh, the tape machines? Did you run it uh, fifteen or thirty um, back then? Um, depends on the period. In the seventies. Well, we always ran the always ran the multis multis of thirty. Yeah, especially one twenty four track. Maybe fifteen on the sixteen track, but not. I, that, that place wasn't sixteen track long enough to uh, yep. really mention. It was the twenty four track studios. Just about ninety nine percent of the time I was there, or forty eight. And then when the half inch. You know, I, the first vital information album was so clean, it was so quiet, because I had one of the JH-24s that were made by MCI before Sony bought them. Yep. Amazing machines. Great to punch in on. Those were, you could punch in anywhere with those things. Yeah, well, they had that choir thing. It kind of frustrated the punch. Yeah. I, uh, Bob Windsor, my tech, put a switch so it would butt like a studer. Yep. If for some things, that was better. Or or he undid the switch, it would just go back to the MCI choir, which kind of faded. in. Thing with a choir, if you punch in the beginning of your word, you get like an S or a T, you get Yeah, I see. You get two S two T's. That's when you want the butt. I see. But if you're doing like a guitar, like a guy gets staining, yep. you just have to, you know, play a power chord, you know, and then, and then like like and then you get punching in the middle of the guy playing it with a choir would just go like you wouldn't even hear it. So like I had but like I, you bring the you bring the drawers out, each card had that little switch, like the scooter punch in or the EMCI punch in. That's crazy. But, uh, Windsor was a really good tech. We had student, we had stu- John French made the student contact playback heads, which sounded much better, like 800s. The only reason I went to Studer's is because Bob got a better offer from the Christian Scientists on Mass Ave, Christian okay. Science Broadcast, and I couldn't match the money. So I, I had to get Studer's because, like, you know, the one thing in those old analog studios, the one thing that always breaks is a multi track. Anything I had too. I mean, I could switch them around, but like you know, if you do forty eight, you know, you're, you're hanging there. Yeah, well, that's crazy. I, I did special neighborhoods once. The first album I did. The neighborhoods. We still talk about the track, yeah. Right. So, so you know, once in a while, 
the cast damn man that goes, you know, when the machine starts going, ray, ray, you know, when the street starts going, have you ever been in the studio when that happens? Yep. Yeah, yeah that's when the cast damn, the, 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 the bearings in the cast damn motor are worn out. And then you get to send that guy in Hudson that fix him, and charge you 600 bucks and it takes like a week to get it back. Yep, that's the end of the session. So, yeah, that's the end of the session for a week. So, uh, because like I got all the songs on the guy, so okay, let's put one down before we go to bed for the night because we spent all day getting the perfect sound, right? Let's record one, right? Well, there's a machine goes, and they're all looking at me. Oh, I don't know. Yeah. They call it Bobby's on the third floor. I said, we got a bump cap stand on You know, all that guy up in Hudson does, it's like, you just clean, you take some flowers, cleans them all out, dumps them all out, ball bearings out, puts in fresh ones, packs them in grease, and puts them back together. So I put the ball bearings in the grease. He said, I can do it myself. He comes down, takes it out of the machine, takes it back. We had a maintenance room, puts it in there, packs it the ball bearings, puts the grease back on it, puts it back together, had the machine going 20 minutes perfectly. Wow. <laughs> Bands are usually very impressed when things don't break in studios. Oh, yeah. The only thing impresses them more than that is when something major like that breaks and it gets fixed instantly. Yeah, that's that's great. You see the look on Dave Manahan's face. I love Dave. He's such a good guy. I, I thought we wouldn't be back here for a week. I said, I didn't either. Yeah. 20 minutes. So you mentioned the uh, inverse room on the Model 200 uh, and the, the 224 as uh, one of your, sometimes your only send in, in uh, a mix. What were some kinds of stuff you wanted, really quirky in Minneapolis. Yeah. What are some other um, pieces of gear that you were big into that during that era? Did you ever get into any of that, like, you know, sort of, 3d like the bedini or the you know like the you know the ursa major stuff you know that there was a thing going on back then that we were kind of experimenting i never liked that, that space station that much steve smith used to bring one in all the time but this sounded like it's real sandy to me i never <laughs> i just never found anything inside it i really liked yeah, i was just curious what other gear that you would be using for outboard. i probably tried out everything there is but that doesn't mean i like them all <laughs> <laughs> wow that's cool i'm a pretty simple guy yeah use your ears that's what I you want- LA3As, 1176s, LA2s, all that stuff on the SSL all works fine. Full text, those are good. Neve modules are great. API modules are great, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then we had every kind of time-based God knows what there is. TC Electronics you know, 2290s you used to use a lot. Oh, I had, well, I had one of those. That's for Tom. I thought, that thing was too slow for me. Yeah. There's too many buttons, too much time. That 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 was one of those time-wasting machines. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> You get all this duck handing type of all this stuff out of it, right? You know, delay. Yeah. I could take a PCM 42 and throw it through a pan scan or a SPX 90 and get the same thing in five minutes. That's funny. Yeah. Tom was a master at taking like using that th- like three of them to do like this really complex ping pong kind of thing. I remember Tom Soares doing some really crazy stuff with uh, those 2290s back then. Yeah, I, I, I think Tom was a really good engineer. If I had, if I had a criticism... Use way too much output. And I find myself now with plugins where you have un- unlimited access to everything. Yeah. Every 16 months ago, you know better than that. You Even when you didn't have unlimited everything, you knew when not to use too much. Well, that's... So that's I, had, I had a lot of output gear in that place. Sure. Okay? Rule number one, you got to hit a music super damn fucking equipment. Amen. I, to me. Yeah, that's great advice you know, for everybody. Like I did I didn't listen to the reason we, this thing exists. Herbie Hancock, that, that song Princess. I'm not Remember you heard that? I said that sounds unfucking believable. It's not coming to mind right now. I'll check it out after the podcast. Princess? It's, it's just it's just it's just uh Herbie Hancock on a eight foot 
Rosendorf Dorfer handmade piano with two thirds of an octave on the bottom. You know, in his hands, what that sounded like. Yeah. Ron Carter on bass, and that speaks for herself. And Billy Carman on drums, doing a jazz thing. We didn't even use monitors, like on the 4,000 seat opera house in southern Switzerland. Wow. And I said, we use monitors with all the beautiful sounds we got on the stuff. It's kind of all that regurgitated audio. And I said, that guy up on it that good. I've already listened. Um, I said, it's going to destroy this. I said, so I said, what would you guys do if you plan like the Village Vanguard or some little Gladstone, New York? We'd all get right next to each other and listen to each other. But there you go. No monitors, no nothing. They all get next to each other. Once you put up the mics, they, they mix themselves. Amazing. That's one of the best sound records I ever did in my life. I'll tell you the truth. No compressors, hardly any EQ, maybe a lot of snare and a kick, maybe a little on a right, maybe a little on a left-handed piano to brighten up a little. I have to listen to that record. It's pretty amazing. You know what the reverb is on that? There's no, oh, no added reverb, no Bill Potnam either. It was a big opera hot. I had 286. We had 487s. One two-pointing up back at the band and two-pointing, they're all in just one thing and two-pointing at the audience right at the top, front top of the stage. Yeah. I turned those up. I get this perfect blend of reverb between all three instruments because they have mixed themselves. So, like, that's, if I want a little, especially Billy played a drum solo, you know, on drum solo, yeah, I can crank the stuff. And then, you know, between things, like the lights go down for a second, you get all this noise because the dim is like in the snakes because you're 250 feet away and it rocks. And like, I just cranked the applause, so you can't hit when it, you get 4,000 people on. You can't hit nice. And second, you know, the second I, I knew that the lights start to come down, I pulled on the audience lights. So you couldn't hear the, all the home going to the shake sure. out of the bed. <laughs> That's crazy. Man. But what the thing was, I, I backed that stuff all up on 24 tracks because we did about 21 acts in 21 days. Wow. That and, and a couple of other ones was straight to two track. I never I never used a 24. It's like, so there was nothing to mix. Those guys got it. Did they mix you know, themselves. And that was that. It got a little drier. Yeah. I turned up the ambient mics a little. That was about the only adjustments I could think of. Wow. And 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 you got a monitor. You can tell who's going to solo. You got a monitor, you know, like a long shot from the audience. Well, not a long shot, but you can see all three, you know, because like, they got like eight cameras and they're editing between people. It was a European TV show, right? Special one up weeks. And uh, I didn't know it was ever going to be released. I, I mixed on a pair of articles. Wow. I thought it was for TV. I just got to have hear those frequencies that come out on TV. I didn't know what was going on at the bottom. I didn't know what was going <laughs> That's amazing. Luckily, I got lucky. I think it's more than luck, Phil. You know, I never, Oratones, you know, yeah. freaking Oratones. You know, but like, uh, I just didn't mess with it. it. It is whatever it was. I didn't add or subtract any top of anything above where the Oratones where I could hit easy work, which uh, six, seven K maybe. Yeah. You know, but I listened to it now. I go, God, that's one of the best things I recorded in my life. And it was, you know, it was recorded to a HER 104 at 30, a half inch. Yeah. Track one was left. Track two was right. Track two was empty. And track four was simply to lock up with all, all those damn cameras. That, that was in Switzerland, right? Yeah, Lugano, Switzerland, 83, Lugano Jam. Amazing. Yeah, I, I'm going to definitely check that out. And that's going to wrap up our first episode with Phil. And Phil Green will be back next week for part two. Thanks so much for listening. This is Anthony J. Resta signing off Studio Secrets A to Z.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 